Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Roger Chapman. Playtime is over from his new Life in the Pond album. A great welcome to you, Roger. Oh, thank you very much. Nice to be uh, talking to you and everybody else. Yeah, Pleasure. So this is your first studio album, I think, for over a decade. Why now? Did it it feel like the the right time for a solo album? Um, No, it it actually wasn't planned as such. I I was just started to... couple of years ago just before the pandemic i think <laughs> I, I mean i was writing and i met polly because polly and i had been doing some family um, shows and things and and i said i'd been writing he says well uh, do you want to come and demo them because he's, he's got a studio in putney in london right. i said yeah that'd be good so i mean i went over to his place his uh, his apartment studio and and put down a, a song you know and it kind of went just really well and so we sort of came to i said do you mind if we do some more we'll just do a collective thing and see you know just keep writing and really the thing was just to write songs you know i mean again yeah being a writer or, or musician and things you don't you never really stop or at least i haven't and the same as polly hasn't either yeah. and we just kind of carried on and all of a sudden we we got you know Two, three, four, five. Then we saw it going at blood. We look, we look like we're heading, might be heading for an album here, you know. So I took the songs to a couple of record companies and they were interested. And so we went full tilt into it, you know. Okay, let's keep writing the songs and arranging them as we go. You know, I'd, I'd write the lyrics as we went and we'd, you know, create the melodies and blah, blah, blah as we went until it became like a full blown thing, you know. The lyrics across the album are, are very varied and uh, cover lots of different themes. Yeah, well, as I tend to do, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I, I kind of write from, from real life, you know, true life things that affect me, one way or the other. Um, and I suppose over the last oh, five or six years, quite a lot of bad politics has gone down. So obviously that comes into play, and just other things, scenarios and. I just basically write what I'm feeling, you know, they're quite emotional or saying that they can come from kind of being half asleep, middle of the night and I wake up and I'll have a thought, you know, and then write the thought down and then continue it the next day. As I've done with many stuff, even from the days of Weaver's Amsey, you know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of stuff really comes from um, not quite here, not quite there, <laughs> quite awake, not quite asleep. <laughs> So, like, yeah, you know, it, it, it's just a thing that occurs to me and, and I feel the need to write it down and uh, 
and then wordplay into something, you know. And the music for the album as well, typified by our next track, Dark Side of the Stairs, showcases such a range of influences from the, the 50s and 60s, and, and I assume many of which were influential for you in your formative years. Well, very much so. I mean, um, both Polly and I, because we're of a similar age, you know, we were obviously first started being interested in music to a serious extent, you know, with the birth of rock and roll, you know, like, you know, you, Jerry Lee Lewis, and you, Little Richards, and those kind of people. And, and they were my big influences vocally and things, and the music that they made. And I assume similarly with Polly, although we come from different cities yeah. and big kids at the time, and both it seems we joined local bands one way or the other, you know, again in our various cities. Uh, and then we've been influenced all the way through, you know, I mean, Americana music and um, R&B, rock, and you kind of grow steadily into you, the more you listen to, the more involved you get and the more knowledge you get, you know, and the more various types of music you start listening to, you know, and getting interested in. So they all, it all becomes, you know, kind of a, a mirage of various musical styles. And uh, I'm glad to say I, I, I wouldn't want to just stick on one, no. on one level. You know, it's just not, it's just not interesting enough, you know. Mm. And we actually got the thing we were talking about. Even Paul says, um, he says, if you do any interviews with this, we should say, you know, we, you know, I mean, for instance, we should say, oh, what about if we write a song like, um, remember that great record, great song on, on the Sioux label, you know, mm. uh, Rockin' You, Moe, and the Boogie Boogie Flu. Mm. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. And I already, already kind of pre-plotted a lyric that added itself to that kind of arrangement, which became um, the Honeymoon song, you know. And really, we do we, Let's do a, a New Orleans song. Let's do a song like the band. Let's do a song fiddle there, and and it, it was a bit like all the things that we've really liked, you know, and, uh, and then brought our own ideas into these things, and I don't know, hopefully created some interesting, varied music. Absolutely, and I think the response so far has been um, has been really good from everyone. So, which I guess was a a recognition of what you and, and Polly have brought to the album, which is. Um, a great infusion of all those influences as well as the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, even, you know, approaching into jazz and it's fair. I don't know. It's, it's what we, you know, after, after 60 years, it's quite like what you've taken in, you know, and, and, uh, and enjoyed. And, um, I don't know, maybe copied a little here and there, but you can't help that they're your influences. I mean, that's, that's always happened to every musician, even the classicals, you know, they were, I don't like to say copying, it sounds a bit trite, but influence is a much better idea, a much better word. <laughs> this ain't the first time she's been in my den. Talking about the good old days, bad boy and man. Wild smile from a wild crocodile. Turn a point to a man, send him home out the back door, Brennan. Can't be good, be careful. Can't be good, beware. Devil on 
do now is take you back into the 60s and we were talking about your influences earlier and, and discuss the the early years of family so how did the band sound evolve into to the music of uh, the first family album music in a doll's house because that's quite a departure from the r&b and and blues that that... We were, yeah yeah we were known for yeah well i you know we i think 
music again at, at that particular age we were all getting all of a sudden there was a whole revolution you know coming from america like the west coast music and and a variation on it and i think we just i don't think you get swept up by it as well um, you know we, we had a kind of a jazzy r&b based music we were playing you know but again it kind of i don't know we did it's hard to say all i can say is it, it just happened naturally we didn't decide to do, do that. Then all of a sudden, decide to go west coast. You know, it all mm. the influences just hit. We had, there were five people in the band, and the influences hit various people in different ways. Um, and it just evolved. That's all I can say. You know, we didn't sit down and go purposely. Oh, let's be an acid band or whatever it's called. You know, mm. it, it just didn't work like that. I think possibly I, I'm actually kind of reliving and think and remember and think about through myself now but it would probably when Charlie and I really started to write seriously together mm. um, I would have been influenced by rock anyway and Charlie had his own influences of various things because he played various instruments I didn't play an instrument yeah. every melody I came up with it just was in my mind and I'd remember it and sing it the next day you know but I mean you know, I think really the big change came when Charlie and I just started to write stuff and, and Rick was writing as well, Rick Gretsch. Yeah. And that's where it came from. You know, obviously we were listening to what was then a, a new kind of music, which uh, ranged between folk and jazz as well in itself, you know, yeah. in the West Coast thing. And uh, we, I don't know, we just uh, took it with what we already knew and um, put it in arrangements a little bit further out than most people <laughs> for those days. But we know, again, we, it was only things we liked. Again, we, we had the jazz influences, quite strong jazz influences in the band with Jimmy, Jim King. And um, he would obviously put his temp anything and, and we'd have arrangements that were not quite rock and roll, not quite this, not quite that, but just something we all were all pleased to play you know yeah and it comes across on uh, winter for example what was the role of dave mason uh, in the production sense well I mean, it was our first time that seriously in the studio you know i mean to, to get all of a sudden going all of a sudden where we've got a name behind us you know as, a, as family they came got to recognize and then we're going in to make our first album it's all pretty sort of life-threatening, <laughs> you know what I mean? We need, you, you need someone just to direct you and show you. And Dave, was who was in, a member of Traffic, and they'd already done their recording and doing quite well, as I assume. Yeah. Well, they were, actually, with Stevie, Winwood and co. And really, you need a, a director in a studio just to keep people calm. You know, I mean, they're quite, it's kind of quite nerve-wracking as well when you your early days in the studio whether you're doing it right, whether even if you're standing right, singing right, playing right, and people listening to you in a little box above your head, you know. Um, so, I mean, he was a producer. End of story, really. But saying that, Jimmy Miller was our first producer. Right. Who, who, was that, who actually produced Traffic. And he was doing the Traffic, the Stones, very successful in those days. And he wanted to be involved with us because we'd kind of been involved with Traffic anyway. We were sort of mates with you know as bands as musicians and they came in and actually worked together in the studio on our first single and i think probably the connection with dave probably came from that our management obviously looking around for a producer 
and uh, Dave's name came up and he came in to produce the um, Doll's House album. Yeah. I mean, we were a little bit in the dark about it all, to be honest. These things were kind of introduced to us as well. It would have been a suggestion to us uh, from our management of the day, say, are you okay with Dave Mason coming to produce, you know, help produce the album as well? And we knew him and I, we, we, we were kind of uh, fans. We liked Traffic anyway not only as people, but we liked the music they played. Um, so it kind of went hand in hand, you know, it's very much like a musical shop, you know. It's, mm. Whether it's more so now, I don't know, but then it was. You know, people used to drift from studio to studio and, yeah. and and join in with sessions and things, you know, especially where we were we, uh, we in Olympic in Barnes in London. You know, this studio we were taking there to make the album and, and you know, the Stones, the Beatles, Traffic, Hendrix. I mean, you name it, everybody was recording there. And um, we'd often drift into other people's studio while they were doing things as, as they drift into ours. So you, it was kind of a mingling of musical souls, really, you know, and no kind of big headedness, nothing like that. You know, no, you were just musicians working in the same environment. talked about the the musical element but the lyrics on that particular area of family are really powerful like uh, peace of mind for example so how did 
you work on the lyrics at the time? Did you have poems that you, you dropped into the music or were you inspired? By I have no idea. <laughs> Actually, it, was, it, it was all subconscious. Yeah. Really, I'd just write things and I'd, I'd, I'd kind of write it in a minute, you know. Yeah. I didn't know where they came from. They just It just, it just started to appear. I mean, I first started writing when I was very early twins, probably about 2021. Then I was influenced by uh, Ray Charles and R&B, that kind of R&B. And I was right. Mm. I found myself writing stuff. And I wouldn't notice when someone says, oh, look, that sounds like Ray Charles is this or the other. And I went, oh. Because <laughs> you don't, you don't realise I'm doing that. I'm just, you know, kind of writing and, saying, again, singing the melody in my head. But basically, I'm copying somebody I like. <laughs> Um, but these other lyrics, I don't know. They just came and came. It was a, a growing time musically for all of us in the band. Yeah. And I assume if I was doing that lyrically, did I say, because I couldn't play an instrument, the same thing was, was sort of happening to the other guys in the band, you know, musically, you know, on their various instruments and stuff. Yeah. So um, I have no kind of firm, positive view on it. It, it appeared, and I'm very, very grateful that it did. to work with Glyn Johns for Family Entertainment? Yes, again, uh, well, Glyn, again, got brought in by the management. Didn't really know too much about him. He, he was introduced, and I, whether he was successful, I assume he was successful, being a very successful man in his own right. But he came in, and, um, and a different, completely different attitude, of course. Mm. 
Dave would be like a mucker, you know, like a mate where John was like a producer. I don't know. We we obviously got along quite well. We we'd written all the songs based basically for that album, the entertainment. We were playing quite a lot of it on stage, and uh, so the arrangements you hear on that particular on the entertainment album, really, we were again we'd uh, been and arranged them ourselves and rehearsed them, you know, for stage, really. And the lyrics of Weaver's answer that. That seems to hark back to sort of mythology, is that right? No, not really. I mean, it might might do as far as somebody else is concerned. No, I mean, it just appeared. I mean, I wrote that overnight. It was like I dreamt it. Yeah. I wrote it overnight, and we I think we, we had to travel somewhere in, in the van the next day to go up to a gig, and I kind of tidied it up in the van. The, I don't even know where the concept came from. Wow. It just appeared. I have no idea where it came <laughs> from. It, it just appeared, and I started writing half asleep i mean there might have been some the odd drug here and there whatever i don't know but yeah. it wasn't really based around that it, it was a kind of you know wake up i woke up in the night and then just started writing and i just wrote this thing obviously if it's it's a story when you read it of course it's like a story you would you would have probably learned a, a, read a similar story at school, you know, like you're saying, mytho- mythology and stuff, you know. And probably I probably did, but it's just come from the past and appeared, you know. Yeah. Um, I'd never, th- I'd never ever thought about, um, you know, the tapestry of life, this that and the other before. Yeah. But it was just, all of a sudden it was just there. <laughs> <laughs> so just a natural process, nothing forced. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been able to do that. I started, you kind of force myself, and I, I, I'm looking at this, this is shit, I'm pushing this, and I just, I just scrub it, and, and let it come, you know, let it, yeah. let it happen. It's, it's obviously in my sub, subconscious, just waiting to come out.
to rest My sorrow blacking out of space Upon now woven crest And every more or less man As a coffin swung in Ash to ashes, dust to dust And they will never again have a session of, of families from 1969 and uh, a track I sing them the way I feel which is uh, an old blues track so were yeah. you um, digging still digging into the, the blues in that period then yeah we were still playing things like that on the road um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the writer actually the fantastic record I can't think of his name now yeah. again basically we were very much an R&B band that got influenced by the jazz elements and, and that was part of, not the sing of the way I feel is jazz, but I mean, I, I was even doing that probably 10 years ago as well. I mean, it's such a great tune. I resurrected on uh, on an album I made of the oldie goldie type things, or probably about 30 years ago, to be honest. I just pull it out every now and then. It's just one of those songs, like, God made man. Hmm. You know, it's just a, a great blues song and, and a great lyric to go with it you know and you were doing a lot of sessions with family in that time uh, john peel was a huge champion yeah well very much so yeah i mean i, I assume he, he just really loved loved the band and um and we were saying we were different going on stage with this new musical form i i mean it wasn't new to us it was just it was just music we were playing you know because other people said it was new and john liked it and become quite a friend of the the band and, and he well Sirius gave us some great boosts on his radio shows and things yeah. I think he, he liked me particularly as a singer you know yeah I mean obviously very grateful
a few years to My Friend The Sun such a great single and it seems bizarre that a song now that, that stands the test of time so well yeah. wasn't a hit, it just seems so bizarre. Well maybe it was a presentation by the record company you know I mean it's, the thing is we uh, we recorded it but it didn't come out till, I mean Burlesque came out first yeah. whether they put out My Friend The Sun it was put out meaningfully I'm not really sure you know I'm not I don't know really but I mean the thing is it's really stood the test of time anyway yeah it's uh if we go to shows and occasionally I don't, I don't do it all the time but when I do I mean people just go whack you know I mean uh, mm. it's a it's a real real big old favorite you know yeah I've had Jim Jim Cregan on on the podcast before and he chose um Linda Lewis's version of that which is uh, also lovely oh I didn't know she'd done it yeah what recorded it? Yeah, for about five oh, years. Oh, really? Later. Yeah, I think Jim was involved, oh, well. of course. Shit, because we were oh, because uh, obviously we were almost touring together at one point. So um, uh, I don't know, but uh, oh, well, I'm sure she would. She's a great singer. Well, mm. <laughs> she did a couple of things with family actually. All right. Uh, yeah, you know, came in as um, did some sort of right uh, vocals and backups and stuff on various. Various songs. Yeah. Actually, I, I think even maybe Streetwalker, she, she might have come in and done it, some stuff as well. She's always been a friend, always been associated ever since those days, you know. Yeah. One way or the other, you know. My friend, the son, 
song itself has got just a, a wonderful simplicity to it, which means it's which is one of the reasons why I think it's been covered so many times. Yeah, I don't know. You know, some are difficult, <laughs> some are tricky, some are not. But for saying that, and maybe the easy ones are the trickiest ones to write. Yeah. And I guess they come, they come naturally, you know what I mean? It's sort of like a forced issue, you know. Just be 
mentioned early burlesque which is such a great track and obviously such a difference in sound to my friend the sun yeah <laughs> the bass on that is so good with john wetton coming in that must have been a, a bit of a shift for the group um well not the style of writing i don't think because i mean again that was a pure r&b yeah but what we, what we did with that was um I mean, when John joined the band, we were kind of halfway through the album anyway, but without bass. Right. So obviously we were looking for bass players and assuming that the bass player would come in and fill his parts in, so to speak. <laughs> That's a terrible phrase, isn't it? Well, um, but, but John came in and he, you know, he, that bass is obviously, he invented that, the bass line, as he did with all the stuff he played. Um, he's just such a great player. And thankfully he came in and, added what we needed at that particular time, you know, what the band needed. And gave it almost a new a new sound around a sound, if you like, to the to the band and with Polly playing vibes and things as well. Because obviously it changed from when Rick was playing violin and Jim and King was playing sax, all of a sudden we've got vibes and we've got like a well, we've got John on bass, which is quite special, you know. Burlesque, that was actually a, a club in Leicester, I've heard, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, writing of the time, you know, I mean, uh, yes, we used to play there. The guy who ran the club was a pal of ours anyway, and we'd go weird things. I mean, obviously, we lived in Leicester then. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we'd, we'd do doubles. I mean, we'd go, <laughs> go and do a gig in Preston. I mean, Preston, right the other side no of in Liverpool. Yeah, no <laughs> And they and they do a double and go back to Leicester and play in the burlesque. Wow. <laughs> Madness. Yeah, serious. Well, I mean, it's just it kind of I don't know. We did it. Yeah. I don't know. We were going home anyway, so I suppose we might as pop round the burlesque and do a gig there. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, but I say he was a big pal, and it was a kind of a big part for us because he was a pal. We go there even when we weren't working. He'd kind of go in there three nights off anyway, because it was a, you know, it was a club. Green up in 
So in terms of family splitting, was it a case of you felt that at that time the banding certainly in that guise had run its course and that you needed to be sort of free? Yeah, I lost its way musically, really. Well, I, I say lost, we weren't lost. Mm. It's just it kind of, we just went down a kind of a, a seriously well-trodden route and um, did, really didn't need another band playing that kind of music. Yeah. <laughs> but... But uh, we sort of lost the spot, it created spark a bit, I think. And whatever, you know, you, you can't blame people who, who ever joined the band, this, that, and the other. We were obviously, uh, I don't know, just the feel for it, I think, had probably gone anyway. Yeah. And actually, we didn't get, no, we didn't get dropped by the label. I read that in the mag somewhere that we got dropped by Warners. What happened was Warners wanted to set up another label, yeah. which was Raft, and they wanted us to actually push the RAF label, so put our album on it. Um, that's what that was. We didn't get dropped by Warners as such. Yeah. Because we were still play- selling lots of, you know, albums and stuff. But that's what that was for. I mean, it, 
it was probably a mistake that we went on Raft because Raft became its own subsidiary mm. in a sense. It, it wasn't our label. It was a, a Warner Brothers label. But anyway, it wasn't that that um, made Family Fold. It was just, it was the musicality really that, that the band was playing. You talked about that, that spark at, at, towards the end of Family just wasn't quite there as you liked it, but that is definitely something that was the case for Streetwalkers. It did, it did seem to shift things up a gear into the, the mid to, to late 70s for you and, and, and give you that new lease of life. Well, we obviously, you know, you need to leave one thing and find yourself again. You know, I mean, it doesn't just because we're finished one thing doesn't make us any less musical, you know. Uh, we met other people like, you know, Bobby Tench and various other musicians who actually came and recorded the first Street War Club and myself and Charlie. We met all these new musicians where before we've just been kind of defined to four or five musicians being in family at this close circuit for a while and we hadn't really worked with other musicians. All of a sudden we stretched ourselves and found all these new guys, you know, great other great musicians, but, you know, coming from a different sphere, you know. That, that kind of made itself. It wasn't planned that we were going to um, have a new band. It, that, that The whole thing was that we were just going to make an album. Charlie and I, and we left uh, Warner's. And they asked us if we'd want to make an album, which we did. <laughs> but then from that, they said, do you want to go and promote it, but get a band together? And we went, all right then. So we used the guys that were on the album. That is how Bobby Tench wasn't on that album, but we used the guys that were there. And then I think Bob joined us later for some gigs. Uh, and then we kind of, some of, the, some of the gigs, we didn't do that many, did a few UK gigs. But then we decided to make it, get a proper band together as well, you know, like a, a steady thing. And then Bob, Charlie and myself decided that we had a bass player, drummer, and a keyboard player with us. And we started rehearsing for that, you know, as a as a set piece, not just uh, Charlie and I with session musicians, as it were. And we went out like that, really. Although the penis got the elbow after a few rehearsals because it started being naughty. <laughs> so we became a five-piece, <laughs> which was great, really, because we'd rehearse all these songs and, and the keyboard play, player's manager, management, decided to do the really naughty financially-wise being stupid. So we're like, yeah, well, you can mm. go off then, that's it. So we went, we went, all right, we'll do it on our own, the five of us. We made Red Card and it was a great album. And I, I always think it's that kind of that steadfast unity thing, just by telling this geezer, no, piss off, start all that now. Now you've been rehearsing all the tracks because they, they thought they were going to blackmail, as you see. Yeah. I've rehearsed all these songs. And then his manager says, well, if you don't give him blah, 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 then he's not going to do the sessions after we've rehearsed, you know, all the sessions, all the songs to make the album. Well, I mean, we've never been people to push around, you know, by anybody. So we just said, right, on your bike, you. And then it became a five-piece with John on bass and um, Nico on drums, Charlie and Bob and myself, you know, five-piece. And it was a good five-piece too. Yeah. Good rock band. Run for Cover's got a bit of that sort of extra fire in, in your belly on that. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, it's always there. There's <laughs> 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 never any shortage of that on a live gig. <laughs> no, we, we probably... 
one of the nearest things we've done to making the, the, the high intensity of some of the shows. Yeah. Uh, we'd managed to put down on record, you know. This was one thing, again, with, with family is that, you know, we had a real high tensile sort of live presence on stage. And I said, well, quite a bit of that was me, mm. whether it was good or bad or indifferent, you know. But um, but in the studio, obviously, we all, we're all there sitting there relaxed and trying to think what the next musical expression might be, not just some idiot in the middle like me. Going, <laughs> 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 we were sitting there thinking about it as opposed to being on stage and not thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs>
Going forward a few more years now, we get to uh, Chapo, the album, and Midnight Child. Yeah. And so this was a period where a solo career had started. Yeah. What was the um, reason for that? Was it just that, again, you thought that well, Streetwalkers had run its course and it was time to... Well, it did. We had bad management problems and things, and, you know, these things start to wear people down, you know. And we had it with family as well, in a sense, and it, it just kind of wears you down. You think, fuck it, you know. Mm. And we uh, give it up. You just go straight to Streetwalker up, and I kind of floundered about for about a year or so. And, and people were asking me if I wanted to do things. And I'd had certain ideas, but the uh, various record companies didn't really follow my way of thinking. So therefore, I didn't do anything. Then I. And then I kind of met somebody who was really interested in me as a singer as opposed to some kind of bit of fucking plastic they wanted to make into something else. Yeah. They interested in what I wanted to do. So that that became the, in, a, in a good way, in a nice way too. Yeah. It gave me the freedom to make Chapo with some people I liked. And that's how, that's how it was made really, you know. David Courtney was the producer there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was he very helpful at the time? Oh, very, yeah, very much so. Yeah, producers are. Like, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I could never have actually done it, made it myself at all, not without David's help. Yeah. And the record company, to be honest, because they, they had faith in me, my ideas as a songwriter and my singing. And, and I, I, well, I met David actually on somebody else's sessions. And I'd, I was helping a guy out vocally with the melody he was trying to get together. 
uh, uh, again, this was in, at Olympics two days, and I lived just round the corner, you see, so it's very handy. Give Roger a call, let me show you how it works. <laughs> and um, and I did, you know, I was again just kind of demoing these songs for the, some people, and David really liked me, and all of a sudden he says, uh, we all got introduced together almost, you know, with the record company that that, that uh, signed me up. And it went along quite naturally and very nicely, actually, you know. That's when I actually first met Henry Spinetti as well, because he was on these sessions. Uh, Steve from Love Affair. Oh, Steve Ellis. Yeah, I mean, he was a good pal. So, I mean, he has to come around and help us out, you know. And then so I used him, I think, uh, with Jeff, Jeff Whitehorn. I'd heard about because... Um, Burn was living in Barnes at the same time. Eric Burn, we were hanging out a bit, and he showed me his new album and says, "Wow, is the guitar player so that guy Jeffrey Whitehorn? He plays, comes from Gravesend or somewhere." Uh, and so that's where I heard about Jeff, and he came in on guitar. And Henry was again was playing with Steve, uh, Billy, Billy Libsey, fantastic keyboard player. He came in from somebody else's suggestion the band was built up like that really was that the the, the band that became known as the shortlist no only part of it right jeff jeff was yeah. and actually henry was working elsewhere so well no actually that's wrong because this, the first shortlist didn't have anybody that was on the album i don't think i'm, I'm, I'm sometimes recall some of this now oh, okay i think i, I demoed some of the stuff with um, Timmy Hingley, Boz Burrell, all basically people, because we were all hanging out together, and Boz, uh, who played with Bad Company, yeah. he, you know, they'd done very well, and Boz had a really nice house in, uh, in where they had, Notting Hill, with a studio there. So there used to be a crowd of us going there oh, a few nights a week, get stoned and play music all night, this, that, and the other. And really, I used the guys who were there, you know, uh, for to demo some, demo some of my early songs. But from there, when it came to putting a practical band together, obviously I couldn't take balls because he was working. The other guys were busy, and you know, other bands, this, that, and the other. And so Timmy and I decided to form a band, which became the Shortlist, and that's when we found Stretch. Jeff didn't come in until later. The, well, actually, the first guitar player and first bass player we had got pulled in by maybe the management. We, we, we rehearsed for a, a couple of weeks, and, but, you know, kind of just auditioning and stuff like this. All of a sudden, they said, oh, Fred, we've got to leave. We can't, can't do the gigs after all, Rog. Very sorry. Uh, been offered a job in the States. And they became foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they didn't do too bad at all. Yeah. But I mean, it, it was like that, you know, sort of like touching go. Uh, and um, Clem, Clem Clemson, he was, oh, a, yeah. he, he was a great, great guitar player. Um, and he came in on the first band, Jerome Rimson on bass, um, Stretch on drums, Timmy on piano, Nick Pencil on sax. We had a couple of girls. Was it Nick then? I don't know. Yeah, it was a great band, actually. And mm. yeah, called Shortlist. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of live material that has been been released um, f- from the eight, the eighties and nineties. Yeah. On is it Angel Air have, have done quite a few uh, reissues and. Yeah, well, I mean, I've almost recorded every gig I've ever done over the past thirty years, one way or the other. So I mean, there's lots of that stuff. It's just stuff I wanted to do, and some of it goes out, some of it doesn't. You know, it depends on 
the night depends on the attitude of the band and if they think that it's a good gig, you know, see if the sound's good. Yeah. Uh, even actually, well, some of it's gone out. You know, the sound's being terrible, but that's that's not all my fault. <laughs> Other people have various versions of these things as well. You know, everybody's everybody's got a recorder on the phone nowadays, isn't it?
we go to a, a, a track that um, was a huge hit, Shadow on the Wall, which was out on uh, Mike Oldfield's yeah, Crisis album. Yeah, yeah. How did you yeah. get to collaborate with Mike then? Um, well, my local pub in Barnes, which has been local now for about 50 years, yeah. uh, <laughs> I used to be a, a guy going there. It was actually the brother of a friend of mine, but I became a pal of his anyway, just because we stand at the bar together, you know. He said oh, he was doing um, MD for Mike. No, TM, tour manager, actually, not, not MD. And working, doing recording stuff. And apparently, well, Mike knew me. I didn't, well, I knew of him, but I didn't know him. But apparently, Mike had come to one of our auditioning. When we, when we got John, yeah. John Wetton for family, we auditioned a few people. Apparently, Mike was one of the guys who got the elbow. <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, he came came to play bass. Well, not the elbow, but you know, what I mean, sort of. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Didn't make it through. But John, yeah, well, John Wetton took it. You know, I mean, it's, mm. it's got quite a lot of difference bass wise. But anyway, we said, "Oh well, say hello." You know, blah blah blah. Say hello back. All of a sudden, I got well. Mike's recording the album. You want to come and sing something? I says. Well, yeah, fine, you know, I mean, just send me three or four songs or whatever they were, demo-type things, and let, let me see which one I would like to see which one I'm, appeals to me, basically. And um, I got the, the riff, no lyrics or anything, just the, the backing and the guitar work. And I went, well, I like this, because, well, actually, I sent Mike some of my albums. Well, I don't know if... It, He'll admit to this, but actually, he got the idea from one of my albums, a song called Prisoner. And anyway, so, um, I, yes, I sent a couple of my albums over, and he, he, he wrote something. Maybe, you know, he wrote things, maybe thinking, well, this is what you write, so therefore you're going to like something like this, you know. I wouldn't really say that he, he purposely stole an idea, but it, it would have influenced him as yeah. I've been influenced by Ray Charles. But, um, but uh, anyway, that came through. I said, well, I like this track. You know, diddle, 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 diddle. I like this. I'd like to do something on that. So I said, all right. So I went to the studio. He gave me a, a fag packet with some lyrics on. And, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and I said, I sang these sort of uh, lyrics, I'll call them, to the track. You know, and I mean, obviously, I've got to make the melody up. I've got to do all this, out and the other, which I did. And uh, it became Shadow on the Wall. You play that live still don't you well you certainly have done in the past absolutely oh yeah yeah well i mean if i go to germany austria you know anywhere european countries i mean it was a huge hit out there yeah and i'm not going to deny that you know to, to be honest it's one of the highlights of my career to have actually been asked to sing that with michael you know yeah. you know i mean it really has you know it's helped my career unbelievably well you know it's because it became it was a, just a giant single over here. It didn't do a carrot. Yeah. I couldn't work it out because the thing is, when it was over here, I think Polydor or whatever label he was on, or it would have been Virgin, would it? I yeah, suppose Virgin. But they hated the thought that I actually sang it. They wanted people to think that Michael sang it. So therefore, there was a cross kind of thing as a, you know, not only not, and they they were they begrudged that I sang it. To be honest, I mean, quite a few people think Michael sang it anyway whatever, it became a huge hit and it really helped me, helped me sustain my life as a musician, you know, and career.
and we get into towards more towards the present day and we've got another solo track of yours all too soon from your one more time for peace album yeah so who were yeah. you um collaborating with in that period oh no nobody really i mean i wrote most of the songs on there the song again i'm not sure where it came from but it worked i was really writing it to my son right uh, you know about well about growing up and all them things and a bit, i suppose in a hopefully a quite a nice poetic way uh, so I say, don't do this, do that. Various <laughs> <laughs> influences come to light, writing things like that. As time passes, do you occasionally look back on your life a bit more in your songwriting? Not really, no. Yeah. The next song is the next song. I'm just grateful when it arrives, and, and, and you know, and they, and when they do, obviously I'm pleased. Ideas. Yeah, once I get an idea, it's uh, like a, a bee buzzing around, you know. And a, I'm pleased I've got it and I have to do it and feel it's right and, and work on it, you know. The gap of about a decade between your solo albums, was it was it because of, partly due to the success of the playing with family again? And, and... I don't know what we see. I mean, I had a, I had a couple of sort of um, albums out in between piece. Yeah. I got somewhere, I got lots of really good recordings and takeouts, takeouts, you know what I mean? From yeah. various sessions in the past, I pulled that together. It's called Hide Go Seek. Um, and then I put another, I put another version of the the, the piece album out, but I added three new songs I had, and that was called Peaceology. And I've been doing that and, and gigging gigging quite a lot, you know, festivals through Europe. And I've never really worked much here because I've never really had success here as a solo artist. And to be honest, I can't be bothered with just slapping about these. Because yeah. you, you get to a certain identity and, you know, it's all down to fees, really. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden they want you to go to Newcastle and back, don't want to give you a hotel. I'm afraid I'm used to a bit better than this, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And and I can't, and they, if you get a hotel in the shit houses, you know, I check in for the afternoon, I go, yes, I'm going home. You know, we'd be driving home from Liverpool, you know. And I just refuse to do that because financially, I wasn't forced into that situation, so I wasn't wasn't interested in doing it. So I would pick I pick gigs to do. There are various clubs and things I would play. The only reason I play there generally is if there's something that's going to be like a, a good promo gig, or I like the venue itself. I don't go to places that are pain in the arse for me to get to, or I get there and I don't like the club, or I don't like the manager, or I don't like this. And it's a situation where I don't have to put up with that shit. Yeah. You know, I mean, about it all, you know, all musicians get it. You know, I mean, and if you're fortunate, you can work your way out of that, you know. Uh, so there wasn't really a period of settling. I probably slowed down as well because of age. You know, I, you know, I can't go out for two or three months at a time where I used to. Uh, I would go out like three weeks maximum, probably usually about 10 days or two weeks. Or go out for weekend festivals. It's a bit too much pressure at a certain age as well. So now I've had the pandemic for what it feels like two years. It will be mm. two years, so no kind of work for two years. And I won't really be gigging until next year. I'm getting asked to do things next year. Well, I got asked to do things this year, but I wasn't. I'm not really. No. It's difficult trying to get musicians to feel comfortable about going on the road and stuff. You know, with, with the. Of course, we can't go abroad. Uh, I can't go and tour the places I really like to go playing. 
Um, so it looks like next year, next year. If the album does well, then obviously people will be flocking <laughs> to bookers. That'd be good. That's all right. He's talking to heaven, son Take a man to draw breath Just the tip of the iceberg Trying to feather the nest Better put it in writing, son My guess heaven's on hold And you'll be waiting till The stars turn cold The mirror crack and spit back old The fairy man long gone no way of getting home And I'll just sell your butterfly Your chariot to the sun Pocket full of big ideas The thrill of being young Remember you may live or die By what you first become I'll too soon your one All too soon it's done It's not too soon it's done All too soon Now he's talking to heaven, son Trying to beg understand them They got us pegged as destroyers Already Lost in the anger of innocence All ruination exposed And no marching band No big parades No healing songs come judgment Just a restless soul Wandering in limbo And all too soon You'll wanna fly your chariot to the sun A pocket full of big ideas the thrill of being young Remember you may live or die By what you first become And all too soon you'll wonder why And all too soon it's done Yes, all too soon it's done All too soon it's done See you.
for the new album is still there we were talking at the start of the show about the, the yeah. varied nature of the music and uh, Rabbit Got the Gun is, is a case in point in relation to it's got its own sound there in terms of what you're doing with it yeah. and you and Polly well again you see because Polly and I have worked on and off for the last 50 years <laughs> you know that sounds weird doesn't it mm. but anyway we have and he's um, been part of my live band now for the past three or four well, since you know we, we did the family stint for about three years and Polly's also become part of some of my live gigs as well you know going out as Rog and the thing is we were you know, actually talked earlier is that my stage presence has nothing to do with my studio presence yeah when I'm on the stage it's all hang out loose I don't like the music to be stagnant. I really do not like repeating myself. I think it's one of the hateful. That's usually when I've ended something that's been going on is because I found everything's getting repeatable for somebody else's ideas of what it should be. For me, music should always keep moving. It's like, I mean, I'm a, as much a jazz player as I am a, as a rock player. Yeah. Mentality-wise, I don't mean I'm a jazz singer, but just mentality-wise, the freedom... You know, there has to be freedom. And if I can't get that, then I'm, it's no good to me at all. But anyway, when I get on stage, you know, I, that freedom is there. And I like to hear that from the musicians I'm working with live as well. We were writing this song, I think, I we're doing this and arranging it, thinking, well, you know, if we were on stage, you know, yeah. we would have a breakdown now. Mm. And we'd do this and we'd do that. We were all, almost working this stuff. John Lingwood, the drummer, him, him or Henry, usually uh, the drummers. What do you think John would do now? Well, John would probably put a fill in like this. And, you know, I mean, we were kind of working like that, as if quite a lot of it was thinking about what we do if we were playing live on the stage with the songs, you know. I mean, that's what we did in playtime as well. I said, listen, if we got there, I'd break the band down. I know I would. I, I wouldn't be able to stop it and, and just try and, um, Nicky, Jeff, play some of it here, do some of it, do the and then build it up and start and restart the, the song again. And there's a, a, two or three of the tracks on the album that are like that. You know, we had that thought process going on. So, yes, they would sound live. I mean, I think Rabbit Got the Gun is going to be terrific on stage, yeah. as I do quite a few other songs, actually. They're just band, they're, they're band material. It's like, it's like this is how, almost how we produced the album think of it as a band making it you know mm. but what do you think we do here what do you think the keyboard player might do here or the you know the guitar player or whatever it is that's a, a great way to end roger so uh life, oh, life in the pond is uh, is out now and i highly recommend it after listening to it for the past few days um it's had a great reception and as we've we've heard from the three tracks here that um oh, it's up there in terms of your solo material across your career thank you very much thank you jason very nice of you it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about all this uh, brilliant material oh and, good uh, thank you all right all the best roger same to you mate all the best bye-bye right, bye-bye bye-bye These blues are made for walking on the streets 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.